forces outside of its near abroad, unless one counts the mad rush to Pristina, Kosovo in 1999, during the end of the Kosovo War, since the collapse of the Soviet Union. Russia's war with Georgia in 2008 sought to check Western influence in its regional sphere of privileged interest and punished the staunchly pro-Western regime of then-Georgian President Mikhail Saakashvili. However, despite an intensive diplomatic push, Moscow largely failed to secure international recognitions for the independence of the breakaway territories of Abkhazia and South Ossetia. It garnered the lasting support of only Nauru, Nicaragua, and Venezuela. The August 2008 Russia-Georgia war, of course, demonstrated Moscow's ability to overwhelm a tiny country on its border. But in general, Russia's efforts to influence and leverage even its neighbors routinely fall short. As Brandon Valeriano and Ryan C. Maness write in Foreign Affairs, Moscow's bark is worse than its bite. Russia's alliance portfolio both underscores and contributes to its problems. Moscow relies on cultivating and supporting strongman clients. It pursues this policy within its own territory such as in Chechnya and the North Caucasus, across the frozen separatist entities it backs in Georgia, Moldova, and Ukraine, and in post-Soviet states such as Belarus and several Central Asian countries. Russia uses incentives, including subsidized energy, military assistance, and pledges of financial support in exchange for continuing fealty to Moscow and support of Russian-backed foreign policy initiatives, such as the Collective Security Treaty Organization and the Eurasian Economic Union. Yet, as the world saw with the ouster of Ukrainian President Viktor Yanukovych, Russia's political clients are often deeply kleptocratic and enjoy fragile domestic legitimacy. It should surprise no one, then, that in a post-Arab Spring, post-Maidan environment, Central Asian autocrats have followed Moscow's lead and cracked down on the political activities of non-governmental organizations and other forms of foreign influence. Even worse, many of Russia's clients are flight risks. They enjoy access to multiple international patrons and could leave Moscow's sphere of influence relatively easily. For example, China offers an emerging alternative to Russian dominance in Central Asia. The European Union pulls at Russian clients in Western Eurasia. This provides ways for many of Russia's clients to enhance their autonomy from Moscow. At the same time, Moscow continues to back counterweight organizations, such as the BRICS and the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, but these remain largely aspirational entities rather than effective problem-solving international bodies. Despite public calls for a Russian pivot to China, numerous cooperative arrangements between Beijing and Moscow, such as the Power of Siberia Gas Agreement, appear to be developing on Beijing's terms, and China has proven unable to provide a source of financing for Russian firms that have been hit hard by Western financial sanctions and need to roll over and restructure debt. At the most basic level, Russia and China remain frenemies, with often divergent, if not conflictual, strategic and economic interests. In contrast, 
The United States sits at the center of a vast network of alliances, strategic partnerships, bases, and access agreements. Washington's close allies include many of the world's wealthiest nations, France, Germany, Italy, South Korea, and the United Kingdom. It is a driving force in NATO, maintains close security cooperation with the Gulf states, enjoys deeply institutionalized alliances with every major Pacific power other than China, and has recently seen many other Asian countries tilt in its direction. Most of its linchpin regional allies, especially in Europe and Asia, are democratic regimes. In France, Germany, Japan, South Korea, and the United Kingdom, the question of security cooperation with the United States concerns not whether, but how much. Of course, critics often accuse Washington of hypocrisy.